Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today's message comes from the Old Testament reading of Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and the Gospel reading from John chapter 20. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, every once in a while we begin our sermons with a joke. But given the fact that we won't be able to hear that immediate response, that laughter from you, because while we're not able to gather in large groups and you're all watching from home, well, I've decided that due to COVID-19, I'm only telling inside jokes. Okay, so the three people that are here laughed. So that's good enough for me. Okay, how about not a joke so much, but more like a philosophical thought. I mean, you might know the most famous one. If a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? I was thinking about another one today, given our current situation. If a worship service takes place in an empty church and no one records it, did it really happen? Finally, one more, and then I'm done for now. This has to do with the gospel reading. If Jesus appears and you don't see him, did it really happen? Did he really rise from the dead? And can you believe it? Before we get to that piece of the story, let's start at the beginning of this scene. This is Easter Sunday evening, that first Easter. The disciples are hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, when Jesus came and stood among them. Now, the word we want to focus on is that little word, fear. Because fear has a couple different meanings, and we heard the word fear in Ecclesiastes, and well, it means something different there than how it's used in John chapter 20. If we look at the dictionary, the first definition of fear is a distressing emotion aroused by impending danger, evil, pain, etc. Whether the threat is real or imagined, the feeling or condition of being afraid. Well, this is what we see with the disciples after the resurrection. They're afraid of the Jews, the Jewish leaders, those who had crucified Jesus. They're afraid that they might be next to go on the cross if they get found. I mean, it almost happened to Peter, and he ended up denying Jesus three times in the process. They are scared for their life. This kind of fear is the kind that many in our world today have because of this global pandemic. They fear for their life. They are afraid that they or their loved ones might get sick and die. This is what we most commonly associate fear with. But there's another definition of fear, and that is to have reverential awe of some object, of someone. Whereas the first definition has a negative connotation with it, this one we could say is more about respect. And we heard it in Ecclesiastes, where he says, it will be well with those who fear God. We can understand more when we look at this in the first commandment and its explanation. 
You shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. This explanation goes on to say that we fear God above all things when we revere him alone as the highest being, when we honor him with our lives, and when we avoid what displeases him. God wants us all to have a healthy fear of him so that we revere and respect him and his word for who he is and what he has done for us. God is our creator. He is our savior. And when you think about it, I mean, he is the God of the universe and the redeemer of us all. How can you be anything but in awe of him? Well, we know that not everyone is. Because fear and trust do go together. We see that in the first commandment. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. We can only fear, truly fear, respect, and revere God when we believe that he is everything that his word says he is. And since we're in Ecclesiastes, a book of wisdom, it's only fitting for us to look at another book of wisdom, Proverbs, and see that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You want to be wise? Fear the Lord. Or as we heard in Ecclesiastes, fear God and it will be well with you. Because fear and trust go together. Fear God, believe in him, and it will be well with you. Not so with the wicked. It will not be well with them because they do not fear God, as Ecclesiastes goes on to say. Well, what does that not well look like? Well, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or to bring it back to fear, Matthew tells us to fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And here's the thing with these different kinds of fears. We should fear God in the sense that we should be afraid of him. I mean, because he holds our life in his hands. He knows that every single one of us are sinners. He knows that we have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. He knows that all of us are wicked and that we do not put our hope and our trust in him, that we break the first commandment and all the other commandments, that we have other gods besides him, that we have other people, stuff, hobbies, social media. It's everything that draws us away from him that becomes an idol, that becomes a false god. And in this time of isolation for many, it is a great test to either draw near to him, to draw closer to him, or to get even further away from him. Because when there aren't very many things to do outside of your four walls, there's plenty of time available for God or not for God. But we are all sinners from birth. We have this sinful nature, and it is natural for us to not choose God. So this isolation might make it easier to keep distancing yourself from God, to live a life of unbelief. And for those who don't believe, there is no life. There is only death. Because the wicked 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we are all wicked. And this is what we all deserve because of our sin, because of our unbelief, because we do not fear, respect, revere God. What we deserve is punishment. What we deserve is hell. And that's exactly why Christ came. Or as Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. We are powerless because we are sinners. And sinners cannot save other sinners. And sinners, like we all are, deserve death, punishment, hell. Therefore, we needed one who had no sin to be sin for us, to take our sin, to take our place, to take our death, to take our hell and save us. This is why we have the virgin birth, why Mary conceived through the Holy Spirit. Jesus needed to be fully God in order to be perfect. And he needed to be fully man in order to fulfill the laws that we were not able to and die perfectly in our place to be that final sacrifice for the sins of all people. This was Good Friday. Jesus takes all of our sin upon himself. He lays down his life for us as the greatest demonstration of his love for us. And that's what Paul goes on to say in Romans 5. While we were still sinners, while we were isolated and distanced from God because of sin, Christ came and died for us to bring us back to himself, to reconcile us, to redeem us, to buy us back, to give us forgiveness for all of our sins, for all of our wickedness, for all of the times that we've denied him, and for all the times that we've doubted him. And he did this so that we would not perish, but that we would have eternal life. And the only way for us to have the guarantee of eternal life, of heaven, of life after death, is for Christ to rise from the dead himself. If he stays dead, if he stays in the tomb, we have no hope. Our faith is futile. It's worthless because we're still in our sins. But Christ has indeed risen from the dead. That is Easter Sunday. He conquered death. He defeated sin and Satan. And he opened the door to heaven. And he has given us the Holy Spirit to believe this, to create faith in us. Can you believe it? Yes but only by the power of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean it's easy, though, because we still have that sinful nature inside of us. We still sin. We still have fears. We still have doubts and struggles. And that brings us back to the disciples and to Thomas. The disciples feared for their lives. They feared men, even though Jesus had already told them to fear God and not man. And so the only way to calm their fears and worries and concerns was to give them his peace, was to be with them. To enter 
the room even though the door was locked and to show himself to his disciples and to bring them peace and to give them the Holy Spirit. And we see that the next time Jesus visits, the doors are still locked. They're playing it safe. But they no longer fear. At least it's not worth mentioning. And this time, Thomas is with them. Now, I don't know that there's a whole lot of people speculating as to where Thomas was at that first appearance, but he wasn't there. If the world back then was anything like the world is now, well, then it was obvious that Thomas was stuck in line at Costco, and that's why he missed Jesus' first appearance. It is possible that he was out getting food for everyone, since maybe they had been hiding there since Jesus' death on Good Friday. Well, and, and you need to eat at some point. So they sent Thomas to run to the market. Whatever the reason is, Thomas is there the next week. And he's known as Doubting Thomas because he said he would only believe that Jesus was alive if he could touch Jesus where the nails were and where the spear pierced him. Jesus then appears again. He brings his peace again. And he tells Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I like to think that in that moment that Thomas sees Jesus, all of his fears, all of his doubts disappear. He realizes it's really Jesus who is risen from the dead. And he just falls down in amazement and worship of him, of his Savior, of his Lord, his God, never once touching him. Now, it never says he touches Jesus. It just says that he says, my Lord and my God. Plus, Jesus does say next, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You believe, Thomas, not because you've touched me, but because you have seen me. And then it would sound weird if Jesus said, well, blessed are those who have not touched and yet believed. Also, I like to think that Jesus wanted to prove Thomas wrong, that he would only believe if he touched him. That all it would take is just one glimpse to know and believe. Today, in all of our fears, in all of our doubts, in all of our troubles, in all of our hardships, we don't just get a glimpse of Jesus. We get the whole picture. We get to see all of him as has been revealed to us in his word, the Bible. And today, Jesus comes to us to be with us as we gather in worship across the city, across the world. And the same Jesus who calmed the storms comes to calm our fears. The same Jesus who cured all various kinds of diseases comes to cure us of our sin. The same Jesus who gave sight to the blind comes to open our eyes to see his life, his death, and his resurrection. The same Jesus who washed his disciples' feet washes us clean in the waters of baptism. The same Jesus who fed large crowds with some loaves and fish 
feeds us with his body and blood in his supper. The same Jesus who gave peace to his disciples after he had risen from the dead is still risen from the dead, and he still brings us his peace. The same Jesus is with us today and always. And that same Jesus remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is our Lord. He is our God, just like Thomas declared. And he is our Savior. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding are your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ, our Lord, our God, and our Savior. Amen.